Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time you're listening to this, this is the Dayson Digest. This is Shaper Spires, the medical director for uh, Dayson. We are recording a Dayson Digest podcast, and today we're going to review the article entitled Proposal for the Use of Echocardiography in Bloodstream Infections Due to Different Streptococcal Species. This article is published in BMC Infectious Diseases. This is in late 2021. Uh, Sandra Shamat-Edeman is the lead author. And we also have a very special guest today, Dr. Renato Perez, who is a second year infectious disease fellow. And he has been helping us out tremendously this year with the abiotic stewardship side of things, as well as with Dayson literature. He has been uh, working hard to crank out some newsletters for us all year, and uh, this is our first podcast together. Uh, we are here to discuss this particular study, I think, uh, and we, we'd like to take a more of a clinical perspective on this, um, and uh, can I introduce you anything else about you, Ray? Yeah, I think you've already overdone my uh, level of expertise here. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill to be on the podcast with you. Um, thanks for picking this article and helping bring it to my attention. I think I really learned a lot from it. I mean, just with all of the consults I was seeing out in the wards last year, I mean, streptobacteremia is something we see all the time. And I think it's uh, really tough to get a good, strong framework about how to think about it. You know, staff we see in and out every day. I think we all feel like we know what our standard of care is going to be for staff, but especially now with the uh, rapid diagnostics and you find out you're dealing with different types of strep species at different times and kind of changes the pace at which you're learning this information. I think I found this article really helpful to come up with a more standard approach to thinking about. Yeah, no doubt. This is uh, obviously something we deal with uh, probably more often this this particular species of bacteria than any other as far as bacteremias go. Uh, so how about let's uh, shall we walk through the article and then uh, as we think about particular topics or particular clinical perspectives, let's let's bring them up and discuss them. Yeah. So I guess just on a big overall here, this is a population based study. So this used a Danish nationwide registry that looked at really almost all of the admissions um, in the capital area of Denmark. Um, over the period of January 2008 to December 2017, so nine years of data, and they captured over 6,000 instances of streptococcal bloodstream infections during that period and looked at which of those patients went on to uh, develop infectious endocarditis and try to give us a sense of you know, what species and what risk factors should we really be considering when thinking about the risk of infectious endocarditis for streptococcal bloodstream infection? Yeah, very useful kind of thought process, problem solving, I think, to, that they're, they're attempting to look at here. So how, how do they how do they find their patients? Let's get to who exactly the, the population is so that we can kind of start to mold, like, how am I going to put this in perspective with my own clinical practice here? So they were primarily doing chart review from this registry and so extracting ICD-10 codes uh, that were related to infectious endocarditis. Now, they didn't have access to details in the chart in terms of what did the echo show to be able to confirm these diagnoses. They really had to take the clinical documentation at its word. Now, to try to reduce the amount of false negatives based on ICD-10 codes alone, they did um, have an additional criteria, which was 
the patients needed to have a hospitalization of at least 14 days in order to be included. Um, they had previously validated with studies with this data set that that had a positive predictive value of over 90% for infective endocarditis. And so we're, they really were focusing on who are the patients who were super confident really had this diagnosis, not just a doctor put that in the chart, but they had a long enough hospitalization that would provide further evidence from their previous validation that that really was what they were dealing with. And I, I gotta say, like, I feel like the Danish guys are, are really good at doing these kind of studies because they do have a really cool EMR, nationwide EMR with a lot of data and a lot of registries just like this. And there's been several other endocarditis uh, registry studies that have come out from that, this country because of that reason. Uh, so this is not something that's unusual or, or novel to this particular group. Uh, and so it, really cool that they were able to do this and thought about doing this. But then again, it's still, like you said, it's a it's a code-based diagnosis, uh, and there are limitations to that. We can talk about that in a little bit, but uh, still nothing. It's not a prospective trial uh, when we're gathering data um, uh, in that respect. So we'll have to keep that in mind. Um, so shall we... Uh, Kind of get to what were some of the outcomes they were looking at and uh, how they come up with these risk factors that they were um, um, using to determine when to get an echocardiogram, when to think about endocarditis. Yeah, so I think just in framing this, this was sort of a sub-study of a previous larger study they had done to kind of look and help identify what are the things that are going to correlate with uh, infective endocarditis. And so they were looking at two categories. One is patient-based risk factors or things about their presentation. And so these are the ones they found that were most significant are ones that I think we all intuitively would associate with being higher risk for infective endocarditis, things like underlying native valve disease. So you have a structured abnormal valve that makes it more likely for that bacteria to stick to it. Previous endocarditis, if it happened once before, you're at risk of it happening again. A prosthetic valve or cardiac device. So anytime there's foreign material, we get worried. And then the other one essentially being the size of inoculum. So they used a cutoff of three or more positive blood culture bottles as one of their other main clinical criteria. Um, but the really interesting thing was them creating these categories of different risk groups for different subspecies of streptococci. So they, based upon uh, their data, they were able to set up these groups of low, moderate, high, and very high risk streptococci. And, you know, I think, again, the, we tend to think of a streptococcal bloodstream infection and batch it a little bit in our heads, but man, the range of endocarditis incidents you're seeing across these groups of bacteria alone before you're even accounting for uh, the patient risk factors is huge. I mean, if you look at the low risk species at baseline, they only saw a 1.3% incidence of infectious endocarditis, fairly low. But you look at our very high risk species on the other side of the coin, and you saw that 35.7% of those patients had infective endocarditis, over a third. I mean, that I mean that even puts staph aureus to shame and pretty wild to think about. That's a great point. I, I think it's uh, particularly uh, mind-blowing when I remember as an infectious disease clinical fellow that first year, every time I get a strep bacteremia, I literally would have to Google Wikipedia or something to look up the strep species and where it where it fits in the particular classification. Is this a beer dance group strep or is this, 
group B strep? Is this, you know, what, what kind of strep to help me kind of rationalize what kind of risk factors am I thinking about for that particular species? So there's a ton of species to kind of hold your head. And I, even to this day, I'm eight years out of fellowship training. I still have to look up these particular species to know sometimes which, what, you know, how do I think about them? What, what, what group they fit in? Well, so the taxonomists don't... aren't helping you either. Well, I mean, you yeah. notice there's granulicatella on here, formerly exactly. a strep species. <laughs> yeah, no, a great point. It's uh, it, it can be it can be overwhelming just to think about it. And 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 when you say the lowest uh, risk strep species, you're we're, I'm looking at the same chart you're looking at here. Strep pyogenes, group A strep, uh, strep pneumo. These are the two lowest. Strep pneumo is actually the reference. Uh, to which in this study they 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 de uh, develop all other odds ratios against, and so it's uh, kind of fascinating. Strep pneumo is one that we see pop up first in the in the blood cultures and and worry about invasive disease. Um, uh, Oster's triad, right? That's like strep pneumo. Like this is something that I traditionally would think of as a, as a, as a risk factor, but it's uh, by no means uh, according to this study. Uh, as high of a risk factor as, it should, as I once thought it was compared to the beard dance group strep. Um, well, how about this? Let's so uh, help me kind of work through uh, how we should think about this in our own clinical practice. Like, um, um, you know, we'll put this particular article in the show notes so everybody can access and look at these figures here. But uh, you know, that they do a really nice job of laying out that particular. Um, uh, odds ratio based on the species, um, which, as you were saying, there is a wide range here. Uh, and then what they also do in this particular sub, uh, uh, I guess, subpopulation uh, or sub study is they develop this uh, algorithm based on the species as well as based on the patient uh, base factors. Um, help me walk through this. Like, sh should I? Should I, uh, you know, hold fast to this, or should I kind of think about this in context, or how how should I use this particular algorithm, or or can you walk me through a uh, maybe in a particular case based uh, scenario? Yeah, so you know, I think Figure Three is definitely something that you know I'm taking a picture of and saving to my phone as a a quick reference while I'm on the wards, and mostly for those species groups because I think it's really helpful to kind of have these ideas of. Hey, once I know this species, what should I think about my pretest probability of infective endocarditis being? Um, and then they go a step further with trying to bring in some of those patient factors to help make a decision on who's that patient who I really need to keep in the hospital and get that transesophageal echo on versus who uh, do I think that I can feel comfortable going without. And so I think big things here, if you have really low risk streptococci, strep intermediates, pneumonia, pyogenes, really it's going to take someone who's persistently bacteremic or has a lot of risk factors before you're going to feel like you need to be pushing for imaging in that person. And so nice to just have a clinical sense of those species, I can be generally reassured. I think also this paper should give some pretty compelling evidence that if I am ever seeing a strep gallolyticus, cordoni, mutans, or sanguinis, that patient is getting imaging no matter what. That very high risk group we talked about, again, rates of endocarditis higher than that of all comers for staph aureus, I really need to be thinking about those species differently. I think the 
tough part with this paper goes to be some of the the more intermediate groups. Like uh, in the moderate risk streptococci, we have some of some that are we see all the time: group B strep, strep agalactiae, strep dyscalactiae, um, salivarius, anginosis. And so, you know, if we look at what they cited as their all-comer sort of pretest probability of infective endocarditis in that population, that's about 6.5%. And then so the risk factors start to be a bit more important here in making that clinical decision of, do I need to be pushing for imaging or not? Um, you know, and I think if patients have these really hard-hitting risk factors, it becomes pretty clear. You know, if someone really has bad native valve disease, they have enduring material, you're probably going to go hunting after that. But for those patients who don't, I think that's where it's going to get kind of tough clinically and and really depend on what's your clinical judgment in terms of your comfort with these pretest probabilities. So I, this is, I think, one of the most interesting discussion points. And I'd be curious what you think, Schaefer, is they kind of made their cutoff of if in fact, if it's less than a 3% chance of infective endocarditis, I'm comfortable saying we don't need to image. Three in 10, just a transthoracic echo is sufficient, greater than 10%. Those are the people you're pushing for uh, transesophageal echo. But that's sort of a subjective call of, you know, where are you going to draw that line in the sand of that, you know, we can get all the data we want about the pretest probability, but ultimately that's a clinical decision of how much is too much in terms of that risk. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Ray. It kind of feels like they drew this arbitrary line in the sand uh, a couple of times here to decide which one's intermediate risk or which one that wait and see, or which one do we actually chase after? I, I think, uh, to answer the question, uh, you know, how much weight do we put in this particular black and white line that we're drawing here? Uh, we have to remember this is a registry study. They don't have, they didn't do chart reviews of 6,500 patients. And so there's still a lot of clinical data that are, are, are missing that you will, you will be able to have on the wards when you see this patient. For instance, I, I have a, uh, a patient that I just saw a few weeks ago, I mentioned earlier, uh, it was a group B strep, so strep agalactiae, uh, agalactiae and uh, he had uh, reports of night sweats and chills for like almost two weeks before he even showed up to the hospital. And so already in my mind, I'm like, this guy's getting an echo. Uh, he's got two out of two positive cultures. I'm pretty sure he's going to keep growing. But even if he's not going to continue to grow, I'm still going to echo on him. And he, granted, he did have an extra risk factor of uh, a cardiac device and, uh, and end up having a, a vegetation on that cardiac device, unfortunately. Uh, but there, the, that's just an example of some, you know, clinical factors that kind of pointed me towards, uh, I'm, I'm going to take this guy a little more serious than others that we can't glean from just this study alone. What this study tells me, though, when they're drawing these particular uh, uh, lines in the sand here, I think... It, it's, you got to draw it somewhere to have some kind of a uh, population-based recommendation, right? Like, um, and, and having the full perspective of who these patients are and what the population they're studying is, <clears throat> it's, it is a helpful guidance, so to speak. Um, and th this study, like you said, you know, it, uh, a second ago, it really kind of brings to high highlight the, the importance of the species of strep that we're looking at. Um, and and I, I, I don't know that most of us have the, that level of, uh, of concern with some of these uh, strep species. 
Um, and so I, I think that's a, that's a big thing I, I, I took away from this. And it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a figure that I'm with you. I, I kind of bring on the wards with me. I have it readily available on my, my iPhone here. Uh, and it, it can kind of help me move one way or the other uh, when you're in these intermediate risk groups. And, and, you know, there's a big push nowadays for diagnostic stewardship or antibiotic stewardship, obviously, but when do you get repeat cultures? You know, we, we say we've recently talked about gram negative uh, bloodstream infections and, and a lot of those scenarios, we don't get repeat blood cultures. Uh, and, and so, and then you get staph aureus where, you know, staph aureus one out of two bottles is never a contaminant. Whereas you kind of have this, this other bucket of strep bacteremias now that we have to kind of build a whole new frame you know, a, a, a framework of how do we address them and, and where we, we put them put them, and uh, how do we work them up. And so I, I think this is kind of helping uh, highlight that they are different. Um, yeah, I think this, this, this particular uh, study has been really helpful. It's helpful to educate others with. They do a great job with the, the uh, figures, but there's still, I, I think, we need some prospective uh, control trials and um, we need a little more data to back up this particular algorithm uh, and, and whether or not we draw these lines in the sand where, where they are now or uh, or do we do we shift them or um, it's nonetheless, I think it's helpful guidance. Yeah, I think like you said, it's a great starting point and a nice reminder with your own kind of vignette that, you know, as great as it is to have these guidance documents and things that we can create as a starting point, nothing's ever really going to place that bedside clinical assessment. And so always having the confidence to do what's right for the patient in front of you. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Ray. Well, I think that'll wrap us up for this day's on Digest. Uh, thank you for joining us and stay tuned for the next podcast. It should be coming out in two weeks. Thank you.